Today, as we, as we look at, we're going to look at verses 16 and 17, and we're going to see a good exposition of what the gospel is. I'll be honest with you, it's going to be kind of a, a theologically dense passage, and so there's going to be a lot of pieces that need to be explained and, and need to be unpacked, and we'll, we'll work our way through those. But also, in the context of where, where the Apostle Paul places this passage, it kind of gives us a glimpse into Paul's motivation for ministry, why he does what he does. And so I want to start this morning uh, simply by, by asking you the question, why do you do what you do? And I mean vocationally, for a living, when you, the, where you work, why do you work where you work? Why do you do what you do? I think for most of us, and, and I think myself included, my first thought is I, I do what I do because I have to pay bills, right? I, I, work, I do what I do because of pay and benefits. But what do you do when what you do doesn't pay? How, how many of you here were with us when we started uh, CCI Garland about a year ago? Got several in here. How's the pay? Huh? Yeah. How's how's the how's the four hundred one k? Are you still waiting on the matching benefits? Anybody had a paid vacation yet? No. When in ministry, when when we're in the business of of being who God has called us to be as a church. Uh, we don't have the motivation of pay and benefits. And so what is it that motivates us? I think that if you were to uh, ask the Apostle Paul, I think he would say that the ultimate motivation is love, right? And if you look at Matthew 22, you'll see where someone asked Jesus, what is the most important commandment? What is the thing that God values most? And Jesus said, what God values most is to love God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second thing that's most important to God is to love people like yourself. And so he says this is, love is the ultimate, the highest motivation. And so we, we internalize that and we get that pretty easily. But when we start talking about on the ground level, right, in the practical day-to-day of doing ministry, what does that mean, and what does that look like? And so the, the writers of Scripture, they give, I've titled my sermon, The Motivation for Ministry. I probably should have called it A Motivation for Ministry, because they unpack lots of different motivations. And Paul gives us, I think, one, one that is central and, and underlined for him. This morning, uh, I hope that as we take a fresh look at the gospel, that you will get some fresh motivation for the work of ministry. I know that we've been we've been plugging along in this church plant for a while and and it gets tiring, right? And so we need some fresh motivation. I think that the apostle Paul would say that the thing that's going to motivate you the most in your love for God and your love for people is to keep the gospel front and center and to be reminded that this gospel that God has given us to proclaim, it's the only hope that people have. And so as we, as we re- reflect on the gospel, as we look at the gospel, we're reminded of what it is that God has done in our own lives, how he rescued me from sin and how he rescued me from a meaningless way of life. And it reminds me that the greatest thing that I can do for God and for other people is to proclaim that. To, and proclaiming doesn't have to be shouting it from the rooftops. It can be over a cup of coffee.
a conversation over a cup of coffee. And we'll talk about that too. All right, so we're going to read, and we're going to begin in verse 8 to get context. So if you will please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word, starting in Romans chapter 1, verse 8. Paul says, first, so again, he's writing a letter. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Heavenly Father, we we ask that you would bless the reading of your word. God, we pray that you would, uh, through this message today, that you would give us a fresh glimpse of the gospel. God, that you would show us your heart and what it is that you are doing in the world and what you desire for our lives and that we would be motivated by it in a new way, in a fresh way. And I pray that greater passion, greater energy, and greater fruitfulness would result from, from what we look at today, what you speak to us today in our hearts. We ask your Holy Spirit to have his way among us today in Jesus' name. Amen. So the big idea of this passage is that Christian ministry is driven by the conviction that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only hope for restoring sinful people to a holy God. The good news assumes some bad news. And the bad news is that people are separated from a holy God because of their sin. And God, if he is to remain holy, he can't simply pretend like sin didn't happen. He can't just sweep it under the rug. He has to address it. And the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel because it shows us how God can address the problem of sin and at the same time draw us into relationship with himself. That's the beauty, the glory, and the genius of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So first, let's think about Paul's ministry. When we talk about why, do, why does Paul do what he does, first we need to know what is it exactly that Paul did. You probably remember the story of the Apostle Paul, if, you've, if you're familiar with the Bible. Uh, in, in the book of Acts, it tells the story of how Paul was actually named Saul, and he was a persecutor of the church. And he traveled around arresting Christians, trying to have them put to death. And he was actually on his way to Damascus with orders to arrest Christians there when Christ encountered him on the road, knocked him off his donkey, and transformed his life. He, when Saul met Jesus personally, his life was changed. And the purpose of his life was redirected. All of the energy, all of the zeal that he had been directing toward the persecution of Christians, now he 
having his own life transformed by the gospel, he realizes, I've got to share this with everybody else. And he understood that God had set him apart to be an apostle to the Gentiles. So the early church was a Jewish community. It was Jewish men and women that God had saved. Paul, in his unique role, understood that God wanted him to go to Gentile. So in, in, the, in that time, in the Jewish mind, there were two categories of people. There are Jews and there are non-Jews. And non-Jews are referred to as Gentiles, sometimes Greeks. So Paul gave himself to this ministry. If you read on to Acts chapter 13, it says that Paul was a teacher at the church of Antioch. And the Holy Spirit said, set aside Barnabas and Paul for the work that I've appointed them to. And they're going to go. And so they start going and they start starting churches. They're traveling around. They're preaching the gospel. People are getting saved. And then they're gathering these groups of saved people into churches or assemblies. And then they would move on. And then if you read on in the book of Acts, you'll find that they go on uh, Barnabas or Saul goes on a second missionary journey. And he goes on a third missionary journey. And what he's doing on these other missionary journeys, they are starting new churches, but also they're strengthening the church. They're following the same circuit that they'd gone on before, and they were going and offering more teaching, more encouragement, more strengthening to the church. And the reason that I'm explaining all this is because I think we need to understand that the, the Apostle Paul believed that the only churches that are going to reach their community. The only churches that are going to impact their culture are healthy churches, churches that are strengthened, churches that are equipped, churches that are are, are thriving. Healthy churches are made up of healthy Christians and healthy families, right? I think this is something that we we have a tendency in our culture to to be either outreach-oriented or inwardly-oriented. So we're either we're either and people usually break it down into evangelism or discipleship. Is your church evangelistic or is your church oriented toward discipleship? I think that's a false dichotomy. A church has to be discipled. It has to be strengthened. It has to know what the gospel is. It has to know what it believes and have it internalized and have a a passion that drives them before they can be outwardly, outwardly motivated. If you have a church that's externally motivated without being strengthened internally, without internalizing the gospel, you end up with a social gospel. You end up with soup soup kitchens that never speak the name of Jesus, right? And we don't want to be that. We want to to minister to the needs, all the needs that people have. Uh, The way John Piper says, he says, we want to alleviate all kinds of suffering, but especially eternal suffering. So the church needs to be strengthened for the work that God has called it to do. Look at Paul's, uh, the words that he uses. He expresses eagerness to minister in Rome. He said he prayed in verse 10. It says that he's been praying for an opportunity to go there. In verse 11, he says, I long to see you. In verse 13, he says, I've often intended to come. Verse 14, I'm under obligation to come to Rome and beyond. In verse 15, he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel also at Rome. You see how he's, he has all these words of, of desire, of longing, of anticipation that I want this more than anything to come and to minister among you. And he says, I want to impart some spiritual gift to you. Now, I don't think, uh, I don't believe personally that that meant that he was going to come and lay hands on them so that they could receive a spiritual gift. I think he meant he wanted to impart his own spiritual gift to them, which was primarily teaching in the book of Acts. He's identified as a teacher. 
He wants to come and equip them and strengthen them with his, with his gift of teaching. And then he, he actually, uh, verse 11, he says, I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be strengthened. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith. And so he wants to come there and he wants to encourage them and be encouraged by them. And he's going to do that through the spiritual gifts that God has given him. And so, again, there's this, this great desire to see the church built up. So, so the Apostle Paul, he wasn't just focusing on his ministry of starting new churches, but he wanted to see the church strengthened and equipped so that it could reach the culture where God had placed it. And we need to have that same kind of twofold thinking in mind. We need to be thinking about how, what, how do we need to be equipped here in order to reach our community here? And how can God use our body to reach elsewhere? And, of course, we, we see God already doing that, right, with Chad and Nancy Bradley being sent out to, to Ethiopia. So then the second movement of Christian ministry, first movement is strengthening the church. The second movement of Christian ministry that Paul was engaged in was reaching the world. You see in uh, verses 13 through 15, he says, I don't want you to be unaware that I've planned to come to you that I may obtain some fruit among you, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. He's saying, I want to come there and preach the gospel because I know that there are some people there in that city that God has appointed to believe, and when I proclaim the gospel, they are going to respond. And so I want to come and be a part of that. And he says in verse 14, he says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So Greek culture, I don't know how, how can I explain this without giving a big history lesson, but Alexander the Great had spread Greek culture throughout the ancient world. And that's why the Greek language was the common language. Even when the Romans took over, the language of Rome was not Greek. It was Latin. And so, But Greek continued to be the common language because of the way that Alexander the Great had, had unified the ancient world through the spread of Greek as a common language. So, so Greek was, was the common language. Latin was like the, the language of law and government. Um, it was kind of a high language. So in Greek culture in general, highly, highly valued wisdom. They, they believed wisdom was like awesome. It was the best thing that you could get. You should seek wisdom. And, and they often believed that it was kind of a secret thing that you had to, you had to figure out almost like a, like almost like a Buddhist idea of enlightenment or something. Like like it was a hidden thing that you really had to had to search for and find. So he says, I'm under obligation to Greeks and so so people who speak Greek and I'm under obligation to barbarians. Barbarian means someone who doesn't speak Greek. So Paul understood that people people beyond the the Roman world, the beyond the Greek speaking world who spoke other languages it's actually a wordplay. Like they like perceived the languages of other people that were not Greek to be like ba 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 ba, and so they called them barbarians. So yeah, so that's what it is. So so people who don't speak Greek. So Paul says I'm under obligation to everyone in the Greek speaking world and everyone beyond the Greek speaking world. He said I've got a vision to go to the ends of the earth beyond the the pale of the Roman government. And so he said, and he, but it's just interesting that he says I'm under obligation, right? You guys know how much Paul got paid to do this? Zero. You know what his his 401k was was pitiful. He had he had no plans, no retirement plans for his future. 
And if you read his letters and hear about what he endured to do this, he had this internal driving motivation. He says, I'm under obligation to people that I've never met. I'm under obligation to people. I don't know them, but God knows them, and he loves them, and he died for them. And so I'm under obligation to take the message to everyone who's never heard it. Do you know that we've got people in Garland who have never heard it? They are, they are geographically near to a church, but they are culturally far. Church is off of their radar. They have no, no awareness that salvation is being proclaimed on every corner in this city virtually, right? Because they're just culturally far, geographically near but culturally far. We have an obligation to take the gospel, to find a way to take the gospel to every person who hasn't heard it. But Paul had a strategy because he was so committed to starting new works, he understood that he, he didn't want to start churches where churches were already started. That's kind of obvious, isn't it? His plan to come to Rome was basically to use Rome as a launching point for his ministry to the, to the, the West. And so in uh, chapter 15, he talks about actually his plans to go to Spain. He says, now he says, from Jerusalem... And roundabout, as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ, and thus I aspired to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. I don't know if you can see this map. Down here is Jerusalem, and he says this is where the movement, the Christian movement started, and Illyricum is up there at the top. It's kind of a northern province of, of the eastern side of the Roman Empire. He said the gospel has gone all the way up there. He said, so I want to use Rome where the star is. I want to use Rome as a base for launching west to Spain. For this reason, I've often been prevented from coming to you, but now with no further place for me in these regions, meaning those places where churches have already been started, and since I've had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while, but now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. So Paul, Paul probably wrote this letter like in the late uh, mid mid 50s A.D. His, he's probably down here in Corinth uh, writing this letter, and uh, there's a lady from a city nearby Corinth named Phoebe, and she's the one who actually carried this letter to Rome. And Paul left from Corinth, and he had when he traveled. He would take up an offering in each city, each church that he visited, because the saints in Jerusalem were suffering. So he would take up a collection, gather it up, and he, so he was on his way back to Jerusalem to deliver money there to the people who needed it. And then his plan is to go on uh, to, to Rome and from Rome on to Spain. And he did end up going to Rome, but he did not end up going the way he expected. You guys remember how he got there? When he goes back to Jerusalem this last time, he, he gets arrested, and uh, he goes to Rome as a prisoner, not as a missionary. Or he was a missionary, but Rome didn't know that. They thought he was a prisoner. So, and that brings us to verses 16 and 17, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God for salvation or resulting in salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek, for in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel. 
I'm going to be a little teachy, pedantic about this. But I know that most of us probably think like, you know, duh, I know what the gospel is. But we need to be reminded and we need to know that we've really internalized what the gospel is. So the gospel is good news. And specifically, the gospel is good news about Jesus Christ. If you look back at Romans chapter 1, when Paul introduces himself in verse 1 of chapter 1, he said he introduces himself as Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. And this is how he describes the gospel here. He says, it's the gospel that God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And it's about his son, Jesus Christ, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh. That means by biological descent, he's a descendant of David, which means that he is the promised Messiah and the royal king who is going to be the king over all of creation. Who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So by the Son of God with power by the resurrection means that everything Jesus claimed about himself, God vindicated by raising him from the dead and proved him to be God's Messiah, the chosen one that was going to bring salvation to Israel and to the world. And so, so the gospel is about Jesus Christ. So the gospel is not about um, being a morally good person. It's not about... Uh, trying to trying to be a better person, turning over a new leaf, getting clean from drugs. It's, it's about Jesus Christ. It's about God's act in human history to save humanity from their sin. And all of these other things, the self-betterment, improvement, all these things are benefits of the gospel transforming your life, but they are not the gospel. And so we, we can't confuse those things. And, oh, sorry. Our Lord. So kurios is a Greek word that means Lord. In the Greek Old Testament, this word was used to translate the divine name of God. And so in the Greek-speaking world, among Greek-speaking Jews, to say Jesus Christ, our Lord, is more than just saying Jesus Christ, our boss. It's, it's an association with the divine name. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. There, it's, it's, an, it's, it's an ascription of deity, that he is God himself in the flesh. Not only is he the son of David and the son of God, but he is himself God. He has, uh, the way that Jesus himself put it in Matthew 28 was what? That all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. There's another motivation for you, that, that the king of all of creation has commanded us to be about the business of inviting people into fellowship with him and with God. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, gives us a pretty good definition of the gospel too. Paul says, Now I make known to you, brothers and sisters, the gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So that's a, a, very, a very compact statement. But again, it points to this historical event, this thing that God did in history. He sent Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect, sinless life. He died for, as a substitute for me. He died the death that I deserved, but he didn't stay dead. And that's good news, right? God raised him from the dead, according to the scriptures. And all this 
was according to the scriptures. All uh, the way that Paul says it in Romans is that it was promised beforehand by the prophets. All the prophets had told this was going to happen, and God brought it to pass. Paul understood the significance of the period of history that he was living in. He understood that this is big. God has stepped into history, and he has brought to pass all these things that he's been promising for thousands, thousands of years. Now they've been fulfilled. We should have such a uh, sense of the importance of the times in which we live. And as we're, we're now in this time where we're waiting on the return of Jesus Christ, and we don't know how long we've got to accomplish the mission that he's given us, but, but we should act like today is the last day. Today is the last opportunity to share it. And then finally, uh, to transition to the next part, Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel. And in 1 Corinthians 18, he says the word of the cross, the gospel, the message of the cross, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. You remember that I mentioned that, that Greeks loved wisdom? Greeks seek for wisdom, Paul says, and Jews search for signs. So Jews wanted you to show me a, a sign of power to prove who you are. That's what they wanted Jesus to do. And, and the Greeks won't accept anything to be true unless it fits into their philosophical system. And a God who comes and dies for people does not fit into the Greek philosophical system. And so they said that's ridiculous to, that a God would die for people. People die for gods, but gods don't die for people. The Greek world had no framework for, for understanding the value that God puts on human life. The, the God of the Bible is unique in the way that he, he uniquely loves the people that he's made in the world. And so and that, that kind of leads us into this, uh, so it's the, to the Greek world, to, in, in to the American world, the, cro- the word of the cross is foolishness for those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. So what does it mean for it to be the power of God? I, one verse that came to mind that I think, uh, will we'll give you a glimpse into Paul's world, is Isaiah 55, verses 10 through 11. He says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there without watering the earth, and making it bare, and sprout, and furnishing seed to the sower, and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth, says the Lord. I will, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire. And without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So Paul's not ashamed of the gospel because he is supremely confident that what God intends, he will accomplish. When he sends his word out, it will accomplish what he desires. That picture of, of fruitfulness, that, that when, when as rain comes to the earth and when rain comes to the earth, it brings forth fruit. Things sprout, things grow, it provides food for people. God says in the same way, when I speak, what I speak will happen. This is the God who said, let there be light, and there was light. We need that sort of confidence in the gospel. In in our culture, and I'm guilty of this, sometimes I'm ashamed because I'm afraid that it won't work. Right, and I want I want a very clear cut formula for how to get people saved. 
right? So I got a lot of books on my bookshelf about how to get people saved. But, but there's not a formula that works because it is up to the, the sovereign work of God in the hearts of people. And, and so, but we can proclaim it with confidence that what God desires, he will accomplish in the hearts of people as we proclaim it. All right, and then he says, so he says it's the power, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God uh, your translation may say for salvation or unto salvation. In the Greek, the idea is really result. It's the power of God that results in salvation. But what is salvation? I think this is another Christianese term that we throw around a lot. We talk about a lot, but what does it mean? And, and this is a little bit of a controversy within some Christian circles because there are some people who say, Salvation is rescue from eternal punishment. So you've sinned against God, and you are hell-bound apart from Christ, and when you put your faith in Christ, you're rescued from future punishment, right? And the people who emphasize that, they look to the Gospels, and they look to the book of Acts, and, and all the Jesus talked a lot about hell, and the preachers in the book of Acts talk a lot about judgment to come. And so that view is, is actually, it's kind of correct that, that we do invite people to be rescued from judgment to come. That is, that is part of what salvation means. And then there's another side, and this is a side that's being really criticized. Um, I don't know if you remember the four spiritual laws. Any of you have heard the four spiritual laws that kind of start with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, Right? And so the motivation that they offer for people to come to Christ is not escape from judgment, but that God loves you and that he has a wonderful plan for your life. Well, is that biblical? I actually, I had a friendly debate the, uh, a few weeks ago with a friend, and I think, I think that it is biblical. And we'll look at a couple of verses. So, so salvation on one side, it's like a coin, and there are two sides to the coin. One side is rescue from sin's penalty, eternal judgment. We see that in Romans 6.23. The other side is restoration of human dignity and glory. When God placed a curse on creation, the humanity was, the image of God was marred. Uh, John Calvin said the image of God in man was defaced, but it was not erased. So we still have the image of God in us, but it is disfigured. It's like a... a Graffiti, a wall that's been graffitied, a painting that's been graffitied. Um, so, so rescue for so uh, Romans six twenty three says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the wages of sin deserves death and eternal death, separation from God. But the, but Jesus rescues us from that. And then secondly, here's restoration of human dignity and glory. Um, so in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He said, and, and those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Well, that's something that is progressively happening right now. And it says those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. That's declared them righteous. And those who he declared righteous, he also glorified. Anybody here been glorified yet? Not me. 
So, so we're in this process, and a lot of people will call it the, the process of sanctification, right, where we're increasingly becoming like Christ. But the part that we forget is that that process of becoming like Christ, this good work that God is doing in you right now, that's salvation too. When I got saved, I was a mess. I was, I was, uh, yeah, I, I was a mess, and 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 I had no. I was seeking all the wrong things. I loved all the wrong things, and I was miserable. And so, what I told my friend when we were debating a few weeks ago, I said, "Eternal judgment is not the only kind of judgment." And if you look at uh, Romans, the next verse, chapter 1, verse 8, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. God's wrath is presently being revealed in the lives of all of humanity. And the, the futility of our lives, the futility of striving and seeking and trying to find our own way in life apart from God, that is God's judgment on humanity. And it's the grace of God that opens our eyes and reveals to us our need for him and that our lives have no meaning and no purpose unless we give it completely to him. That's the gospel. That's salvation. So, and absolutely, we are, we are saved from eternal destruction. That's salvation too. So, so we don't want to treat it as though it's an either-or proposition. It's both and. So the restoration of human dignity and glory. So he says, uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. The invitation is inclusive on one hand. The invitation is for everyone, right? The Apostle Paul saw his, his purpose as, as preaching the gospel to every, every person because God has appointed some to life and some will respond. But on the other hand, the invitation is exclusive. You don't, you're not invited to come to God on your own terms. You're invited to come to God by faith alone, in Christ alone, and on no other terms. Uh, this, this is another place where the gospel gets watered down in a lot of our presentations, is that we, we, we preach the, the me- and this is really what the, the guys who are heavy on judgment, this is what they're reacting against. They're reacting against preachers who uh, say God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life and, and you can, he just wants you to follow him. And they, they, don't, they don't preach the cross. They don't preach repentance from sin and, and this total radical commitment of the self to God. That's, y'all, that's faith. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Real faith is a total giving of yourself to God. And it's not less than that. It's by faith alone, in Christ alone. We, don't, we give up pursuing anything else that we've been trying to find meaning and purpose in, in our lives. And we... And we Come to God declaring that his purpose for our life is now our purpose. And he says, so it's to everyone, but to everyone who believes, 
to the Jew first, also to the Greek. So there's no distinction of race. doesn't matter what color your skin is. It doesn't matter how much money you make. doesn't matter what part of town you live in. It's for, for everyone. But he said, and he says that for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And he's saying that uh, in, in the gospel, we see how God has addressed this problem of, of human separation. That, that God, in Christ, he was able to lay the iniquity of us all on Jesus so that he could forgive us and give us the righteousness of Christ. But the righteousness of God in this verse is really, so it's talking about that free gift of righteousness to those who turn to Jesus Christ in faith. And I want to read a, a passage to you. I don't know if you know it, but uh, this year, Halloween, this year will mark the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. In 1517, Martin Luther nailed his uh, 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, and which sparked off the, the, the Reformation. And in, in Luther's day, the way that you get, were made right with God was by um, gaining merit. So you could do things, do good things yourself, but most people acknowledged that I can't really do enough.